Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Monday, March 15th, and this is your FT News Briefing. An online payments provider is now the most valuable private company in Silicon Valley, and there's been a surge of new businesses created during COVID. I truly believe that this was one of the silver linings of the pandemic. I feel like I have the true entrepreneurial spirit. We'll look at why millions of Americans decided to set up shop this past year. Plus, we'll have a sneak peek at the latest episode of the FT podcast, Tectonic. Host John Thornhill looks at how Taiwan and South Korea deployed new technologies to stop the spread of coronavirus. I'm Marco Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. The e-commerce boom has been good. For Stripe, the online payments processor has just become Silicon Valley's most valuable private company. It's now worth $95 billion after the latest round of investor fundraising. Stripe was founded by two Irish brothers, Patrick and John Collison, now 32 and 30 years old. Their company's valuation has almost tripled in less than a year. It's now more than Facebook and Uber were before they went public. Since the start of the pandemic, more than 200,000 new companies in Europe have signed up for Stripe's platform. Co-founder John Collison said its systems handled almost 5,000 requests a second last year. That's right, almost 5,000 requests a second. And those included payments, refunds, and customer data checks. The pandemic has devastated other businesses besides Stripe, but it turns out lockdown has been good for the American entrepreneurial spirit. New data from the U.S. Census Bureau shows nearly four and a half million new businesses were created since last March. Here's one of the people who started one. Are you feeling emotionally hangry? Eat a therapy snack with me, Molly Zive. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. Just like snacks... Molly Zive's podcast is called Therapy Snacks. It's part of her strategy for a larger business that she's doing now. Zive is 31 years old and lives in San Diego, California. She had been working at an insurance agency taking calls for an employee assistance program. After the pandemic hit, she decided to start her own therapy business. By taking the leap, I kind of evaluated my risk, right? Like the worst thing that was going to happen was I was going to end up at the job that I was very unhappy with. That was a risk that I was willing to take. And so with a great support system, I was able to take that leap for myself. The FT has been reporting on this latest business boom. So I spoke to Brooke Fox. She's one of our data journalists. She's been reporting on these COVID entrepreneurs. And I asked her why so many people decided to start their own business this past year. The reason why, after talking to a number of new business starters and economists, it turns out that the pandemic has created this catalyzing environment for people to start new businesses. They can do it from home because there is a lot of extra time that people have right now. So you could be theoretically working your full-time job remotely and still having a lot of time in your day because everything is sort of locked down right now. And the other part of that remote aspect of this is that you can actually start your new business from home pretty easily. So Brooke, do these businesses then become job creators for other people who are looking for work? So time will tell because remember, this data is some of the very earliest information that we're going to get about a business. So some of these are still getting off the ground. But the data pointed to about 35% of the new businesses are actually going to create jobs for other people, meaning it's not just a self-employed 
type of situation. And that's actually on the form that they fill out for the IRS when the IRS collects this data. They actually have to check a box that says, yes, I'm planning to hire other people. So it's a question that's up in the air. It does point to this idea that if these businesses survive, that they will be hiring more people. It's just also sort of a question of, will they survive? And um, one of the economists I talked to pointed out that even in the best of times, not every new business survives. So Brooke, are there any similarities among businesses or any themes you noticed among businesses that were founded during the COVID lockdown? A couple of economists that I talked to indicated that what we're seeing with this technology utilization is basically sort of a delayed effect of using technology that was already invented to its fullest extent. So even though you know web conferencing has existed, social media has existed, all of these tools online to create businesses have always sort of been around, or have been around for at least a little while. It took a pandemic and forcing people to get really familiar and really comfortable with them and really forcing the necessity, like we're all going to be using this at the same time, for people to really start using it in this way to the magnitude that we've seen. So that points to, it could point to sort of a fundamental shift in the way people start businesses even after the pandemic is over, which would be really cool if we continue to see this trend of increasing new businesses even once the lockdowns have come off. Brooke Fox is a data journalist for the FT. We're in the middle of a digital revolution. The lines between our physical world and cyberspace are constantly blurring. We are living through one of the, the kind of great transformations in history. That's the FT's innovation editor, John Thornhill. He hosts the FT podcast, Tectonic. The show explores how societies are navigating the new digital landscape. In the latest episode, he looks at how Taiwan used cutting-edge personal tracking technology to contain the coronavirus outbreak. I think uh, the way that Taiwan did it would not be permissible um, in many other countries because they did take data which other countries um, gather and then they kind of melded it in a way. They, they cross-checked data um, and were able to kind of test and trace in a very effective way. And so it's not that other countries could not have done that, but they didn't have the legislation in place. And I think there was a lot higher skepticism about how the government would use that data. So I think it's uh, one of the lessons from this series really is that the technology and the data revolution, there are enormous possibilities to use this for good ends, but it does need enabling institutions, it does need a trusted mechanism so that people feel confident that their data is being used for the societal good and not just for private gain. Right, and that trust is, is super important. Just think of South Korea, for example, which used location data in the pandemic. Um, in the most recent episode of Tectonic, uh, you feature our Seoul bureau chief, Ed White, who, who's discussing here how South Koreans feel about this data usage. While, yes, they do have to give up civil liberties for a wee while, I think there's an understanding that it won't be permanent. And should it become permanent, I think then you would see a backlash and then you would see people being more concerned about it. But when you look at what's happening in Europe and you think, well, these are places that don't have these systems in place, and yes, they're going back into lockdowns. Having had all of these warnings and having had the lessons that Asia has provided, I think that actually underscores for a lot of people in South Korea that actually their system is the right one. Do you think that Western countries could eventually adapt this kind of uh, system now that we've seen the kind of devastation that we did in this pandemic? Yes, I think every government is now going to be very focused on how they can respond next time. And 
the use of data and technology are going to be absolutely central to those debates. I mean, I think I should just add at this point that um, what some of the East Asian countries have done has not been uncontroversial. So in Singapore in particular, there's enormous trust in how the government uses this data, but there has been an instance where the government have taken some kind of healthcare data and used it for a criminal investigation, which was not what the data was gathered for in the first place. Uh, And that caused quite an outcry. But I think the point that was made in that clip there, that legislation, as long as there are sunset clauses in it so that people have confidence that their data will be used to address this healthcare emergency and then the sunset clause will kick in and that that legislation will expire, I think that does give people trust that the data will be used for the purposes for which they are prepared to authorize it. So, John, can you recall any precedent for this kind of digital transformation that we're in right now? I think that uh, we are living through one of the the kind of great transformations in history. And uh, one of my favorite economist historians called Carlotta Perez identified five of those in history. There was the Industrial Revolution. There was the steam engine railway revolution. There was the electricity revolution. There was the oil and mass production revolution. And now we're living through the fifth of those, the computer revolution. And according to her, she thinks we're only about halfway through this process. So we're still in a process of great turmoil at the moment. But she notes that after every one of those preceding revolutions, there has been a kind of institutional phase. The technology comes in, it gets adopted, it gets deployed on a mass scale. And then society figures out, well, hang on a minute, this technology is changing the way that our societies operate. We need to readjust. And so the institutions come in and um, you have legislation of labor markets or child safety acts that are passed. And I think that's the stage that we're at at the moment. Uh, We're still in the middle of this huge uh, technological transformation. And all of us are trying to figure out what does this mean? How does it change the way that our economies and societies operate? And what are the institutions that we need to put in place now to regulate this and manage this transition in a better way than we have managed so far? I'm looking forward to listening to the rest of the series. Thank you, John. Thanks, Matt. John is the FT's innovation editor and the host of the FT's Tectonic podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT news briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.